Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Fernando Albertorio, who is a patient advocate for Hermansky-Pudlock syndrome and an entrepreneur whose company, Sunu Inc., creates wearables designed to aid people who are visually impaired. We'll be discussing Hermansky-Pudlock syndrome, Dr. Albertorio's advocacy, and his business. Welcome, Fernando. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure being here. So I thought we would start by maybe you introducing yourself a little bit and telling us a little bit about your background. Of course. Uh, so I'm, uh, my name is Fernando Albertorio. Um, I'm a serial entrepreneur uh, and also uh, have a science background uh, for over 15 years. Um, pretty much uh, have been working in, in a couple areas in science and, and my degrees in chemistry. And I also have a postdoc uh, in, uh, in physics from Harvard and have been working in business since 2010, uh, creating technology companies uh, in a couple of different areas. And so today we're going to be talking about uh, Hermansky-Pudlock syndrome, or HPS. And what is HPS? Uh, sure. So I have um, I was born with the condition of ocular cutaneous albinism. Um, so I have albinism. Uh, I'm originally from, from Puerto Rico. Uh, and the reason I mention this is because uh, HPS is a genetic metabolic disorder. Uh, it's characterized by albinism, uh, vision impairment, uh, platelet disorder uh, that also, uh, or platelet dysfunction that also results in prolonged ble- bleeding. Um, it's a, a, gen- a genetic, as a genetic metabolic disorder, uh, it's actually pretty complex. Um, there are about 10 different uh, known types of HPS. Uh, whose symptoms can vary from mild to pretty severe. Uh, the severe ones are the, the genes that are involved in creating the severe symptoms uh, can range anywhere between from inflammatory bowel disease to pulmonary fibrosis and even kidney disease. Um, and HPS uh, was uh, discovered by Dr. Hermansky and Dr. Pudluck, hence the name Hermansky Pudluck. Um, and it's abbreviated, so it's usually referred to as uh, in its abbreviation HPS. Uh, it was discovered in Czechoslovakia back in 1959, uh, but then found uh, across the world. And Puerto Rico, actually, uh, the island of Puerto Rico has the highest, the highest prevalence uh, of HPS and, and albinism on this side. And so in some of the more severe cases, what does that look like for people who manage the disease? You mentioned irritable bowel syndrome and other lung disease. Can you talk a bit more about that? Sure. So um, in, the, in the severe cases, depending on the type of HPS that you have, um, you could develop, uh, um, the patient can develop uh, other conditions like uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, pulmonary fibrosis is, is prevalent as well, um, and it can be de- developed throughout the, uh, the life of the patient, either sometimes even as early in their teens, but also commonly later on in life. Uh, and so there the treatment uh, results uh, in, a, in a lung transplant. Um, you know, the, the condition um, can have also debilitating symptoms, um, uh, both respiratory as well as, um, you know, dealing with um, bleeding issues uh, and other type of conditions. And so you also have been involved in some clinical trials involving HPS, but you have an interesting story about your first clinical trial. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved? Yeah, of course. So um, my background, as I mentioned, uh, is in science. I studied chemistry 
um, and then went on to work at the National Institute of Health. This is when I was a young, young and early on in my career uh, to get more experience in, at the bench uh, in, and in research. Uh, so I got into a biochemistry, one of the leading biochemistry labs at, at Building 10 at the hospital, uh, research hospital at, at NIH. And while I was, um, you know, recently arrived at NIH and still getting, getting used to knowing about the Institute and, and navigating around the Institute, um, I ran into, uh, actually, the, one of the leading researchers in HPS ran into me, uh, kind of followed me around for a bit in the hospital trying to figure out if I was either a patient or, or, or a staff or working at the Institute. Uh, I had a very interesting conversation with him because I, I uh, didn't know about HPS. Um, at the time, uh, this was like back in two, 1999 uh, when I was uh, uh, doing, going through my fellowship there. And uh, he, it turns out that he, he had his laboratory and his research group about a couple floors below where I was working. Uh, and so he in, shared a lot of information about um, the, the disease, uh, the condition, and also invited me to take part of the study. Uh, and as an opportunity for me as a scientist to learn more about the science of my condition, um, and it was a great time uh, learning a lot from, from, from Dr. Gao and his staff. What was it like learning about, because you have such a strong science background, what was it like to learn about the disease from that viewpoint? You know, it was very interesting. So um, at that time, I, I didn't know anything about patient advocacy. You know, I was... Um, I, like I said, you know, I left Puerto Rico, uh, having recently graduated with my degree in chemistry and wanting to focus in on getting into grad school or decide if I was going to go into medicine and, and become a doctor. You know, I wasn't sure yet about my, my career. Um, learning about um, HPS uh, through Dr. Gall uh, and his team was a very eye-opening experience on many levels, both personally uh, and then again professionally, but also uh, getting to experience uh, the protocol, being a patient in a, in a clinical trial, uh, meeting meeting families from Puerto Rico and other other persons with albinism who were who were there to get tested uh, or go through some of the, uh, the trial as well. Uh, it was it was a very big eye-opening experience for me, and I, I started learning a little bit about advocacy. Um, it's primarily, uh, you know, talking to patients or with family members, um, you know talking about the science behind that or trying to explain it. Um, it was kind of my first uh, entry into, into advocacy. Um, being a scientist, um, my curiosity for learning, you know, how the disease works um, gave me some understanding about, you know, the, the molecular level um, and, and at the genetic level. Uh, for me, it gave me a little bit of comfort uh, knowing that, you know, there's science being done. We're, we're really kind of, diving into how it works genetically and and how we ultimately get to a cure because that's the that's the most important thing that everyone wants um, and yet also being able to to explain that in a way that other people can understand uh, was something that really kind of was an eye-opening experience for me and what was that first clinical trials goal if I remember correctly, I think um, um, I was invited into the trial to uh, get uh, material samples for, for the genetic testing. Uh, we're still, um, you know, developing um, the – or testing out the methods for, for doing the, um, the genetic screening, uh, as well as uh, having my, 
my, my pulmonary function tested as well. So just basically collecting data uh, on me as a patient from Puerto Rico, as well as other patients. Um, that's as much as I recall from, you know, this was back in 1999 um, from, from that trial. We've talked a little bit about HPS, but I understand that there's an entire network dedicated to HPS. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? So the network um, began, um, uh, the founders, Donna Pell, um, her daughter um, having HPS, I, I think that they were the first um, uh, patients in that, in, in that trial. Uh, patient zero, um, and they were really instrumental in 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 getting um, the researchers at NIH to pay attention to this and develop a trial uh, with Dr. Gall's team and, and other teams as well uh, at the institute. And so Donna uh, and her team formed the our family formed the HPS network uh, as a way to provide education uh, for people with albinism and their families and raise awareness about this condition of hermansky pulak because not, not all people with albinism have uh, the gene for HPS, uh, but it's important that if you, if you are a person with albinism that you get tested and that you learn a lot about this condition that could affect um, you know, life um, later on for you. Uh, so they were very instrumental in developing uh, educational, um, experiences uh, for people going into Puerto Rico, um, creating uh, day clinics or, 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 or day uh, seminars or conferences, as well as the, the network is an advocate for persons with albinism and HPS, and they also promote the scientific development um, research uh, for the condition and ultimately lead to, to a cure, because that's what we're looking for, is to, to find a cure for the condition, especially uh, when it comes to those having the severe uh, forms of HPS. You know, are there treatments, improved treatments for, for pulmonary fibrosis and, and for HPS? What do treatments look like now for people managing HPS? Yeah, so um, some of the treatments, um, and again, the, the symptoms could, could uh, vary from uh, mild to severe. Um, you know, knock on wood, I, I've been, uh, I have a mild form of it. Um, but for those people who have um, severe forms of HPS, um, it involves, you know, regular checkups with the pulmonary um, physician to monitor your, your pulmonary function. Uh, you may be on certain on certain medications to delay the fibrils forming in your lungs. Uh, ultimately, if the condition progresses even further, um, then you're you're got to be on the on the lung transplant list and prepare for for the for, for the lung transplant. And it's a very involved process, um, but it, it requires continuous medical care and attention, uh, regular visits to to the doctor as well as. You know, living through the the condition when you know for people having the having the severe forms, um, you know it could be with IBS or with pulmonary fibrosis. It's, it could be quite debilitating, um, especially during this time of COVID nineteen. Um, you know, it, it's really an eye opener to to think about how we live in this time. Everyone's concerned about you know what happens if I get sick. Uh, for people with HPS uh, and those having the um, the form that that affects your respiratory function, uh, it can be especially nerve-wracking. I mean, imagine 
going to the hospital, figuring out that, you know, you, you've got COVID-19. Um, on top of that, you have HPS, explaining that to the medical staff there, um, and then having to even face the potential outcomes if you, if you were to go into ICU. Uh, so there's a lot happening, a lot of stress involved there. So you also are an advocate for people who are visually impaired. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that and about your company, Sunu. Of course. Um, so I tend to more advocate for people with, um, with uh, sight impairments and uh, either blind or low vision um, uh, myself. And, 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 I, and I do help out with the network. Um, I got involved with the network actually through, through meeting Carmen Camacho here in, in, in the Boston area, so with their New England team. Uh, primarily through social activities, but as well as trying to help out in, in anything I can. Uh, and so, yeah, so I've been, you know, kind of helping out on their calls with parents whenever possible. Uh, but my advocacy work is around uh, folks with low vision uh, and the use of technology and product development towards uh, empowering the lives of people with disabilities. So I advocate for people with disabilities as well as with as well as for entrepreneurs who are developing technologies that could enable um, those who are blind or low vision to to have more access to have a better experience. And so, can you tell me a little bit about what kinds of innovative technologies you're using, or where you're innovating in that space? Of course, yeah. So, um, so as part of my advocacy work, um, and again, you know, this kind of happened as a progression throughout the years as I've been moving through my career as a scientist and now more as an entrepreneur, um, having left academia, um, I've developed a, a co-developed a company called Sunu. At Sunu, we create mobile, wearable, and IoT technologies that enhance um, the lives of people with um, the, uh, vision loss or blindness and low vision. And our technology is a wearable device called Suniban. Uh, it uses sonar with haptic vibration feedback to improve the awareness uh, for the individual to so anything that's in the environment. So using sonar and haptic vibrations, the Suniban alerts the person to any, anything that could be an obstacle within the environment. It basically helps reduce accidents and improve self-confidence. And uh, we've been developing the technology since 2013 um, now have the product in the market. And as part of my journey as an entrepreneur and technologist at Sunu, um, I've been developing myself also uh, as an advocate because I feel that both go really well hand in hand um, as a technology creator and as an entrepreneur. Um, we really have to have to be active in our communities and the people that we want to serve uh, and understand how we add value, not just through a product or through a mobile app, but how we can enhance that value through conversations, through advocacy. What have people expressed to you as, you know, challenges for them or things that they would like to see improved upon? Of course. So we, we're always, um, you know, Sunu started as a, it actually started as a community service project at a school for blind girls in Guadalajara, Mexico. And then uh, when I met the, the founder or the creator of Sunu here in Boston in 2014, I tried out the technology and was immediately impressed with it. Um, I borrowed it for a day and ended up keeping it for a week. And just seeing the potentials of this technology, I, I, I just jumped on board. 
um, to, to work with him full time on it. And, you know, we've been engaging folks since then, whether at school for the blind or the leading organizations for, for the visually impaired, uh, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. Uh, and since then, we've created a, a wide uh, partner network that spans over 35 countries. Uh, we're working with some of the leading distributors of technology, but as well as some of the leading organizations like Vision Australia organizations. Uh, we've worked with organizations here in the U.S., like the National Federation of the Blind. Uh, and so it's been a great opportunity, not just test the technology and get feedback, but also listen uh, to folks on this end, uh, understanding what are the what are the biggest problem challenges that the, that we face as a visually impaired community, and then how we can contribute to that conversation. So we listen to the conversation, but we also contribute it through through either um, you know videos or. Uh, we're hosting, I'm hosting a, 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 a mini video series uh, where we're providing information, uh, content through conversations that I'm having with leaders, experts, and advocates in the community to help us better live through COVID-19. Um, how do we, how do we um, engage uh, our communities during this time, you know, from going out to the supermarket and using technology at the supermarket to maintain social distancing? Um, a lot of our users have told us that our technology is helpful for uh, maintaining social distancing because, it's, again, it's using the sonar sensor to detect obstacles in the environment because it detects people and help you have that awareness so that you can maintain that proper social distancing. But we're also uncovering a lot of things prove um, access to print materials or to, or better yet, to materials that normally are in print. We need to make those materials accessible for low vision and in Braille for those people who, who are blind or also in audio form. Um, things as, as like signage in the supermarket, um, you know, labels on, on food. Um, you know, we've been, we've been as a community asking this to be fixed for many years. And right now the, the pandemic has created an opportunity to apply design, apply a little bit of universal design to solving some of these gaps that we currently have. Uh, and so we've been very active in not just listening to the conversation, but also being a leader in the conversations as we speak with these experts, with folks in the community. Do you think, it seems as if um, the pandemic has opened up conversations around research and around medicine and around the ways that we design. Do you think I mean, you touched upon it a little bit, but how do you think that pushes forward conversations for people who manage rare diseases, for people who might be visually impaired? Of course, this is a conversation that needs to continue to happen. It needs to be in the forefront. Um, for people who are leading and managing, um, it's an opportunity for them to innovate, to get to be creative, to form partnerships with technology companies, whether big or small. I mean, there, there are quite a few startups or uh, companies that, that, that are nimble, uh, that can pivot, that can re-engineer, that can bring, uh, you know, design or use design to solve some of these gaps that, that we're talking about, um, as well as um, provide information, um, advice, um, you know, kind of have a bit of a light of the, uh, uh, during this time of how do you advocate for yourself um, if you were to be in a hospital so, or find yourself in that, in that situation. As a patient with a rare condition, 
uh, and also a vision impairment, um, how to best use those tools. You know, imagine going into the hospital, not being able to breathe well, and, uh, and on top of that, mm. you're visually impaired and you're given forms to fill out and sign, and yet those forms are not accessible. Those materials are not accessible. Um, so how do we it, – it, it's – it's opened up an opportunity to have these conversations uh, with uh, the various stakeholders, like medical teams or, or healthcare, uh, and how do we improve that for uh, experience for persons with disabilities? And are there any resources as we're signing off that you would recommend people to check out, or if they're curious about HPS or about learning more about visual impairment, are there any resources that you can leave our listeners with? Of course, yeah, there, there are lots of resources. Um, on albinism and HPS, I highly recommend visiting the HPS network. That's hpsnetwork.org. Uh, and then you can also visit noaa.org uh, uh, as well for albinism. Uh, on rare disease, uh, there's a, a network called Global Genes. Uh, globalgenes.org has a lot of resources and um, even grants uh, for individuals with uh, rare disease or, or advocates uh, working in this area. Uh, so those are great resources. Thank you so much, Fernando, for taking the time to talk to us. For more information on our own podcast, you can go to theconferenceforum.org. Thank you so much, Fernando. Of course. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me.